Talk Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, January 14th, 2011. This week, episode 192 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Clips hey, Lutton. Joe, I, I'm glad you made it. The weather kind of had me a little nervous. Uh, it was a little shaky on the way in, but we made it. At the controls is our engineer, Austin Stone Cold Novak. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio trivia question, an interview with Anthony Worthen, President and Chief Operating Officer of Air Quality Sciences. Halftime, we'll have a little halftime segment, hopefully bring in Dr. Wow at that point, and then of course we'll go back to the interview and finish as we always do with our roundup. We've been adding a blog to the IAQ Radio site Every week after the show, check out Cliff's blog at iaqradio.com. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. Okay, to join the show, you can follow the link from our show announcement. You can go to the iaqradio.com website and follow the link that says go to the show. You can also call in at 724-444-7444. Our ID is 1547. And, of course, a lot of people download the show afterwards. You can either stream it directly from our website after the show, usually Saturday afternoon that's up, or you can download us from iTunes or from the TalkShoe.com website. Again, that show ID is 1547. Don't forget, we also have renewal credits for the American Board of Industrial Hygiene, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, and the American Council for Accredited Certification. Just email me at joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com and request one of our knowledge surveys, we're calling those now, Cliff, uh, and we'll uh, verify that you've listened to the show. We'll get your renewal credits out to you. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thank you, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live via your computer, just go ahead and text in the answer. Congratulations! 
to Andy Krasowski, Comcast Metal Products in Mars, Pennsylvania, for being the first person to answer last week's trivia question by identifying Nebraska's state legislator. I'm sorry, Nebraska State Legislature as being unique in having only a single chamber or unicameral legislative body. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, January 14th, 2011 has been sponsored by Cochrane & Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now for this week's trivia question. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, what percentage of what Americans throw away is recyclable? Back to you, Joe. All right. Good one. Today's guest, Anthony Tony Worthen, is the president and chief operating officer of Air Quality Sciences. Tony oversees all the company operations, including business development, financial, and strategic planning. He began his career with AQS in 1991, serving in a variety of capacities from technical to account management to field consulting to process improvement. He was eventually promoted to quality manager and later to vice president of operations. He was named president in 2001. Tony is an expert on emissions from interior furnishings, construction materials, and other consumer products, as well as the impact of emissions on human health. He holds a master's degree in public health in environmental and occupational health, and a management development postgraduate degree. We're here today to talk about the uh, new AQS paper, Defining Green Products, and we're happy to have Tony on board. We've got some intro music for him. But green's the color of spring. It's not easy being green. It's not easy being green. Hello, Tony. Do we have you on the line? Hey, guys. How you doing? Good afternoon. Great. Good. Thanks for joining us. And uh, we, you know, I, I took a lot of time and, and really tried to look over the paper real well, especially again last night. And one of the more interesting things I thought, I'm, I'm a history guy, so I've been, you know, one of my my degree's actually uh, partially history in my minor, and I was looking at your timeline of key events for green product consumerism, and it started at about 1980 and went through 2010. Can you review a couple of the key points from, let's start with 1980 to 2000? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, prior to 1980, uh, you'd find very few products that, uh, that were marketed with any environmental message whatsoever. I think the the only exception would be organic products uh, in the food industry. That's really about the time, 1980, 1982, where you began to see more and more products being uh, positioned as, as organic. Uh, but what happened is by the late 1980s and early 1990s, the notion of green products became a bit trendier, and actually that was about the time that you saw the term uh, green consumerism uh, being used. And then by the mid-1990s, we started to see a real increase in the number of uh, products that were been, being marketed as green for manufacturers uh, throughout, throughout the United States and North America. But was, what was really interesting, Joe, was that at that time, even though you saw that rapid increase in products that were being marketed as green, it really wasn't having an impact on people's buying habits, meaning that people seemed to care about these issues that, that were termed green, but, but it really didn't seem to impact what they bought and why they bought it. And I think it's important to remember that when we're in the late 1990s, uh, our economy was, was booming and uh, maybe more importantly, uh, the cost of energy was really inexpensive. And then all of a sudden, as the 21st century started, uh, you began to hear more concerns being raised uh, in the media, especially related to climate change and natural resource depletion. But I think what was also interesting is as we began the 21st century, the cost of crude oil rose dramatically. So I think people then not only felt that doing things that were green was the right thing to do and it felt like the right thing to do, uh, but at the same time they started to see where it could have a, a beneficial impact on their pocketbooks. They could save money through energy efficiency or fuel conservation and, and so forth. So we, we not only saw that from the consumers that were starting to change the way that they decided to purchase products, 
But then at the same time, in the construction and building industry, you, you began to see designers and architects, contractors, uh, developers start to try to design buildings uh, for the same reason, to try to, to create these green buildings, which in the end ultimately would provide uh, not only were the right thing to do from a corporate uh, citizen standpoint, but actually they were the right thing to do from an economic standpoint as well. And I think it's where you marry that concept of, of doing green things for the right reasons, for the, the purpose of leaving this planet a, a better place than we found it, but where you marry that with the concept that uh, this also makes economic sense. I think that's where we've really seen this whole issue of green explode over the last five to ten years. In the paper, there are a few numbers that you put out that you know, really illustrate how much it has exploded. Which one would you say kind of you know really got your attention the most? Well, you know, there's um, there's a really interesting set of work that was done by a group called uh, Terra Choice, and it was the sins of greenwashing, but and we can talk about that maybe a little later, but what was really interesting is the research that was done in that report, and I think one of the things that was really interesting is that between 2009 and 2010, they went through and they uh, surveyed uh, these big box retail stores, and they were looking for green products, and just in that one-year period, uh, they found in 2009 a little over 2,700 products that carried some kind of green claim. One year later, in 2010, that number jumped to 4,700 products. It was a 73% uh, increase. And I think that's just a, an indication for, for your audience of just how rapidly this concept of, of uh, green marketing and green products has grown. You know, Tony, your paper starts out discussing the fact that green can be defined in many different ways. And in spite of the problem uh, with these inconsistent definitions, that the term green has made its way into the lexicon, do you see any effort being made to standardize what the term green means? I think it's tough. You know, you think about the term green, and it essentially uh, tries to imply that, that a product or a service is providing some type of environmental benefit. But the problem with the term is that when you, you think about the, the various attributes that can be associated with green, they're incredibly varied. So I think that in general, people uh, are, are discouraged from using the term green because it can mean so many different things and it can be confusing. I have, some, I have heard some say that uh, a better use of the word is greener, uh, but ultimately what, what is really being pushed in the marketplace today, and this is at the manufacturer level, uh, this is also at the government level, is instead of using these broad-based terms like green, is actually just to better define, if you're going to make a claim, an environmental claim or an attribute claim, to define specifically what that claim is for your product, as opposed to necessarily using these broader terms such as green. Okay, can you give us an example of what something more specific would mean? Yeah, it would be uh, instead of saying that... Uh, uh, a product, for instance, uh, say it's an electronic product, and say instead of just simply saying this product is green, it's actually to say that this product is energy efficient and being able to attach to that uh, some certification, some reputable certification, third-party certification, indicating uh, that that product is indeed energy efficient, as opposed to just saying the product is green. Therefore, when you have a consumer or a buyer that's going and they're looking at various products to buy, they then can make the choice of whether they want to buy that product because of its energy efficiency, uh, because maybe it, it, it is more energy efficient than a competitive product, uh, or, or they may decide that that's not important to them and, and, uh, and choose another product. I guess I look at it kind of as there's almost three major categories that people look at when the term green is used. It's either energy efficiency or uh, better for the environment, I guess, or I think some of our listeners would look at it as better for the indoor environment as opposed to the, the outdoor, you know, the, the environment overall, but the indoor environment. Can you comment on, on that just a little bit, Tony, with, whether um, certain groups look at green in different ways? Yeah, you're exactly you're exactly right. Uh, you know, it's interesting. The paper talks about this, but I think it might be a, a, a good way to to, sh to show the audience really how complex this particular market can be, but the National Institute of Building Sciences has their whole building design guide. And if I could have just a moment, I'll, I'll just name some of the things that they list which would indicate that a product is green and then uh, get back to actually talking about the relationship between 
uh, green in the indoor environment. But if you look at that list, and again, it's in the paper, but it's pretty interesting, uh, the definition of green could include a product that promotes good indoor environmental quality. Uh, it may include a product that is durable and has low maintenance requirements, a product that incorporates some type of recycled content, whether that's post-consumer or post-industrial recycled content, uh, a product that's been salvaged from existing or demolished buildings, uh, a product that's made from natural or renewable resources, uh, a product that has low embodied energy, meaning that the energy that it took to to design, manufacture, distribute, and use the product was low, um, that the product doesn't contain uh, halogenated uh, chlorofluorocarbons, uh, that the product is obtained from local resources and manufacturers, or that the product uh, employs sustainable harvesting. And that's just to name a few. So you get the sense there of just how uh, incredibly complex the the concept of green is, uh, but specifically, you know, one of the to me the most personal aspect of of this notion of green uh, is health, and it's one that's tied very closely to uh, this whole movement and uh, the the concept of creating good indoor environmental, uh, creating a good indoor environment or good indoor environmental quality is a key aspect of green. And and like I said, I think that for um, for employers who are who are designing and constructing a new building for their employees, or for a family that is renovating a nursery for the arrival of a new baby, the concept of being able to uh, maintain a good, healthy indoor environment is probably the most personal aspect of the whole green building process or green movement. And that that definition is from the National Institute of Building Science, so they're I would imagine they were looking at it more from the you know the viewpoint of of the buildings in the built environment, and uh, yet they still came up with all those different variables. Yeah, and I think it's just a great example of, you know, we talked about how the term green is used so universally in the marketplace, and, and it really gives you a good example of why it is difficult to simply call a product green, because there are many different definitions of what may be a green product. You know, I, I think we're in a competitive environment. It really doesn't matter what you do if you're a contractor um you know if you're a builder if you're a repair person everyone competes with everyone else and you know we kind of go back to that list that you just gave us you know it's a pretty long list and in that particular list um if i'm competing against another company i want to have more things on my list than they have on their list and i mean i could just see the whole label being taken up with all these different things it's it's durable it's uh, you know, can, it's renewable, it's recyclable, you know, everyone wants to fit in all these categories because it's competitive. And I think what happens is it's almost inevitable that um, people can become more and more confused. No, I, I agree completely. I think that, uh, that that's the challenge. And, and, you know, at the same time, uh, consumers or buyers of products or, or maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's a developer who's developing uh, new buildings they also have their own personal interest in in what's important to them from a green standpoint. While some may be uh, very interested in a recycled content of a product, that really may not matter as much to other people, and they may be more interested certainly in uh, the indoor environmental quality aspects of a product. Or some may be interested more in water conservation and energy conservation versus uh, some other green attributes. So I think even to make it a bit more complex is that you also have the concept of, of people's own uh, buying decisions that come into play, and and when they look at these materials or when they start to develop new buildings, uh, they are determining for themselves which of these elements are most important. And I think that's the problem. And and what's so important is that whether it's a product or a service, that it actually communicates very clearly to those buyers what their product or service is offering from a, a quote green perspective. You know, one of the ways that it seems industry or in some cases government is trying to help sort out the uh, the questions here and, and the, the the problems with the definition is through eco labeling or third party certification can you talk to us a little bit about some of the third party certification programs out there and, and which ones in your opinion are the are the most reputable that people should be looking at when they choose products yeah, you know, it's been a, a real uh, uh, hot topic of discussion over the last two or three years because what's been found is that, that uh, products that carry uh, a, 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 an appropriate 
third-party certification, meaning that the that the program itself is not associated with, uh, for instance, the manufacturers who, who is trying to have a product certified. Uh, and at the same time, uh, a third-party certification in many times will be audited and uh, have the, the blessing of an accreditation body. For instance, you have third-party certification programs that carry an ISO guide 65 distinction, meaning that they have been uh, externally evaluated to show uh, that they're indeed uh, uh, an appropriate third-party uh, certifier. And I think when you start to have more and more of these credible third-party certifications in the marketplace, it tends to cut through the clutter, all this green clutter that we talked about, because then your buyers and consumers that are, that are selecting materials in a big box store like a paint, uh, if there are credible third-party marks out there, they then, they then can rely upon trusting that, that credible third-party mark as opposed to necessarily having to be an expert in everything green. And there's quite a few uh, credible third-party certifications uh, in the marketplace. Uh, GreenGuard is certainly one that would be very salient uh, to this audience from an IQ perspective. Uh, GreenGuard uh, has been in place since 2000. Uh, it certifies uh, products for their low chemical emissions, ultimately creating better, healthier indoor environments uh, across 28 different industries. I think the total number of products that exist on the website today are in the range of 11 to 12,000 products that have been certified. Uh, if you were to actually look at all the different color combinations and different versions of those 11,000 products, I think it would represent uh, over 250,000 products in the marketplace that can carry a Green Guard mark. And the beauty of, of that program is that it is really free to the public. It's uh, The public can go in, they can search for products uh, on uh, Green Guard's website, be able to find those products that are low emitting. Many of these products are available for consumer use. So if you were to go into a Home Depot or Lowe's, uh, not only uh, could you use the online resource, the product guide, to find those products, but you could simply look at the products themselves and see if they carry the Green Guard mark. Uh, there's other uh, marks uh, out there that are also uh, credible. The Eco Logo mark uh, is one that has been in existence for quite some time. Uh, it's more of a life cycle mark, so it's it's uh, combining a number of different uh, green attributes. Uh, green Seal uh, is another example. It's one of the older uh, third-party certifications. It's been around since about uh, 1989, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And let me go back to Eco Logo. That's out of Canada, I believe. That yeah, that's correct. Okay, and then that that takes into the consideration the entire life cycle of the product. I'm curious. When I don't know if you know, this is kind of off, uh, maybe catch you w without knowing the answer on this, but when they did the survey of the big box stores, were they looking for products that were certified through one of these programs? And if so, which one would be the most common one you would find in these big box stores? Uh, I think it, it, it depends. I think the big uh, labels that you're going to find, the programs that you're going to find in the marketplace, uh, are going to be green guard uh, from an indoor environmental quality perspective. Let's just say you're going into uh, uh, one of the big box retailers. So you've got green guard that you'll find on everything from Owens Corning fiberglass to um, uh, to uh, uh, liquid nails. Uh, and then you have uh, the Energy Star program uh, from the EPA. You'll you all know going through the appliance section of uh, of these retailers, you'll find uh, uh, significant marketing related to products being Energy Star uh, qualified. Uh, and uh, you'll see some that are that uh, claim water efficiency through the WaterSense programs. Uh, you see Green Seal on, on quite a few products uh, as well. So those are probably the largest marks that you would find, especially here in the United States, if you'd go into the, the primary uh, retailers, whether that's Home Depot, Lowe's, uh, Walmart, et cetera. Now we've, we've got a text question. Let me uh, get this. Uh, maybe I'll reword it a little bit. I know we've had several air quality sciences uh, Persons, personnel on the program in the past. Uh, Dr. Black was on the show. Uh, Dr. Horner was on the show. And I know you do a lot of emissions testing at Air Quality Sciences. And the text question is, is, is there a relationship between GrainGuard and AQS? So I assume they're asking, do you do some testing for that program? Yeah, we do. We do uh, a significant amount of testing for the GrainGuard program. We're one of their scientific partners. There's also a uh, laboratory in Germany that uh, does uh, testing for our Europe, uh, European uh, companies as well. Um, but at the same time, uh, we also uh, conduct testing for a, a wide range of manufacturers and programs. So we also conduct uh, the testing for 
the Carpet and Rug Institute's uh, Green Label Program, and then a lot of the work that we do at AQS, and this is a lot of my background in history back into the early 90s, a lot of the work that we do at AQS from an emission standpoint is actually associated with uh, working with manufacturers who are in the early product development uh, phases, uh, and what they will do is actually have their products tested early in the design phase, and then we perform a, a tremendous amount of risk, uh, risk assessment, risk-based testing for that manufacturer, trying to help them better understand if there is a particular chemical or group of chemicals in their product uh, that, uh, that may lead to some increased risk of adverse health effect. Because if you do that testing at the very early design stage, uh, the manufacturer has the chance to go in and find the source of the, that chemical or group of chemicals uh, and then be able to, uh, to remove it from the process before it ever reaches the marketplace. You know, there's one that I wasn't aware of here, and I know Cliff's circling it right now. Maybe you want to follow up. I didn't know California had the one, Cliff. Had. Yeah, can you talk a little bit about this California specification, you know, what it may cover, how good of a job it does? Uh... Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. Uh, it's, it's often referred to in the market as uh, California 1350. And if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it was originally published as a, a state specification for uh, a, a, a complex of new state buildings that were being constructed. And what it does is its focus is on chemical emissions and trying to minimize the impact of chemical emissions from products and providing some type of avenue or benchmark for products to be tested according to to determine if they would uh, be appropriate to be used uh, indoors in uh, California buildings. What has happened with 1350 is it has, uh, in many cases, become uh, uh, kind of a uh, the benchmark or a core aspect of many of the emissions testing programs uh, that exist today, at least in North America. Uh, and I think it's good. 1350 is good. It's a, there's a method associated with it. I think the challenge with 1350 uh, is that uh, it uses uh, chronic reference exposure uh, levels, and these they're called CRELs. And right now, the list of chemicals in which that particular uh, method or specification uh, identifies that are applicable to the indoor environment is about 35 chemicals. And the challenge that we have is that in the testing that we've done at AQS, we've identified over 11,000 unique chemicals that uh, can either be found in an indoor environment or emitting from a product. So when you think about the universe of potential chemicals that are out there, greater than 11,000, versus the current list in 1350 of 35, certainly there's a big gap between uh, what that particular method covers versus what may exist in the marketplace. So if there's a weakness, it would be that. But at the same time, I think it is a good, it is a good starting point. And like I said, for many of the programs, including the Green Door program, uh, it is uh, – the Green Guard program includes those requirements for uh, those California uh, 1350 CRELs. You know, this is a, a good place to go to halftime, but we've got a, a minute or two before we do, and then you, you brought up a point there that really got me thinking. Um, you've got all these chemicals, and, and as Cliff and I and a lot of our listeners know, there aren't really good standards or exposure limits or CRELs or whatever terminology we're using for a lot of these chemicals. How do the, how do the programs handle that, Tony? I, I would imagine each one handles it a little bit differently, but if you really don't have any standard to go by, what do you do? Just measure all 11,000? I mean, how do, you, how, do you, how do you choose which ones to measure? That's got to be tough. That's, it's, a, it's a great question. I think it's done different ways, but, uh, you know, one of the things that you do is, is there is the ability to be able to pull in other resources, whether it's uh, chemicals that, are, that have been evaluated by the EPA and that are on the IRIS database. There's uh, chemicals associated uh, that have minimal risk levels that have been established by um, the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. It's a division of CDC. Uh, and, of course, there's also occupational exposure standards for quite a few chemicals. Uh, often when those are used, uh, you would take... Uh, some factor of that. So it would be uh, instead of using the actual occupational exposure level, whether it be a, a TLV or a PEL, you would actually take uh, one-tenth or in some cases one-hundredth of that value and use it as your criteria. So I think the first step would be that you want to try to pull as many resources as possible so that you can have a, a, as large a database as possible uh, to compare chemicals to. Uh, what some programs do, and, and this is done heavily in uh, Europe as well, is 
the concept of the fact that we may have information on several hundred chemicals, if you look at all the resources that are available, and we are measuring upwards of uh, you know thousands of chemicals, and like I said, we've identified over 11,000 unique chemicals. So what you do is you say, well, we have a gap between the two, and what uh, what uh, the Green Guard program does, what uh, all European countries do, is they insert the notion of uh, total VOCs. So they'll actually sum uh, the VOC level, the, the individual VOC concentrations to create a total VOC level, and they'll actually create guideline criteria and have criteria based on TVOC. Now, while TVOC can't necessarily be associated with a specific adverse health effect, uh, and it shouldn't be used in that way, what it can do is it can help uh, a manufacturer manage the overall chemical load that their product's producing, and in turn, it's the notion that reduced exposures uh, in general, in the absence of knowledge, are better than higher exposures. I'm glad I asked. That was uh, very interesting to me. And let me uh, real quickly ask if you can hold on for just a moment while we thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Sure can. Our association sponsors, the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental contractors and consultants for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. All right, let's go back to the second half of our interview with Mr. Tony Wortham, the uh, President and Chief Operating Officer of Air Quality Sciences. In the first half, we, we covered a lot of good background information here, Tony. And what I'd like to do to start out the second half is there's a, a section in the paper uh, that, that goes over, you know, some greenwashing issues and uh, some of the, the problems that we, we see with respect to um, the, the marketing of these products. And I'm wondering if you could touch on some of the environmental myths that we, we hear out there. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a, I mentioned it earlier in our conversation, there is a a very interesting uh, and helpful set of uh, research that's been done by uh, by TerraChoice, and uh, I would uh, urge your listeners to to go look it up online. It's uh, uh, they, there's actually three different reports that they generated over the years, and they, they term these the the sins of greenwashing. And the first report uh, talked about the six sins of greenwashing, and I think that was published back in 2007. About a year later, they added a seventh sin of greenwashing, and then uh, Last year, the end of last year, they published their 2010 update, and it was uh, greenwashing, the sense of greenwashing, I think they call it the, the Home and Family Edition. So urge your readers to go take a look at that. It's got some uh, tremendous information in it. But in general, what, what this organization did, which is really fascinating, is uh, over these three time periods, they went into a series of the large big-box retailers, and over time they've gone into more and more of these stores. And essentially, they uh, inventoried all of the products in those, uh, in those stores that attempted to carry a green claim. And after they, they, they pulled in all of their information in 2007, they were able to create these initial six, what they call six fins or six buckets of how people are greenwashing or how uh, manufacturers are greenwashing uh, in the marketplace. And it's, uh, it's really fascinating. I won't go through all of the, the sins with you. 
but uh, but it was interesting. You know, they they call them the sin of um, of no proof as an example, where a manufacturer will make an environmental claim that can't be substantiated with any evidence whatsoever. Uh, so they had a series of products that fell into that category. Uh, one that I thought was really uh, um, uh, kind of comical was uh, their fourth sin, which was called the sin of irrelevance. And this is where um, a, an environmental claim was being made that was possibly and uh, likely truthful, but it was really unimportant or unhelpful for consumers. And they gave a great example of that is that they found a series of products which claimed to be CFC-free. That was a, a green claim. But in reality, uh, CFCs have been banned uh, legally for the last 30 years. So while indeed it's truthful, uh, it's actually irrelevant. So there's a series of those sins, and then uh, in their second edition, they added the, uh, a very important one, which is what uh, they called the sin of worshiping false labels. And this is something that I think we've all seen as we've gone into the big box retailers or even grocery stores, and you'll see products that will have a seal or a mark on the product and claiming that it's a certification mark, but in reality it's, uh, it's a, a mark that uh, is not third-party and in many cases may have actually been created by the manufacturer themselves in trying to apply uh, a green claim. Um, so there is a tremendous amount of that going on. Those studies uh, show that the very first one, that uh, out of the many, many products that they evaluated, I think there was only one that they considered sin-free. Uh, the, the second uh, report... I think there was some improvement. It was 2% of the products were sent free, and then I think the last report, it was somewhere just north of 4%. So it shows that while there is being some progress made, it's very small incremental steps, and there's a lot more that needs to be done. But it really is a, a very nice expose on how rampant the concept of greenwashing is, why it is so confusing to so many people. And I think what these reports also do is they put a lot of pressure on the marketplace and on uh, potentially the government to come in and, and try to step in and help uh, clear the haze or to to um, uh, eliminate some of the uh, uh, some of the myths that exist in the marketplace. You know the report. I, I urge people who are listening to to get a copy of it, and I know we'll we'll talk later about how. And those of you that got my invitation to the show, there was a link on that invitation to get a copy of the report. But when you read over some of the bullet points with respect to these seven sins, it's just amazing i mean the the fact that uh even though greenwashing continues to be rampant it has declined slightly since 2009 with 4.5 percent of products now sin free i know you just mentioned that compared with only two percent in 2009 that's just amazing that only two percent of products were, were sin free uh, and now only 4.5 percent um what what are we doing other than government regulations what other things do you see happening that are going to help with this problem of, of greenwashing? Yeah, well, I think that the third-party uh, labeling concept, and there being more emphasis on organizations providing third-party accreditations for uh, these types of claims have helped a lot, because uh, you may recall that in, in reviewing information on these, these three studies that have been done, it shows that uh, I think 30% of products, I, I can't remember the exact number, but a significantly higher percentage of products uh, are sin-free when they carry an actual accredited third-party mark on them. So I think that's one thing, is that can really help. I think the other thing, too, is just as the market matures, as these, uh, the, the concept of, of marketing green matures within these particular manufacturers, I think they also get better at being able to, to better articulate to the buying public what it is that their products offering from a green perspective and again we talked about it earlier but it may be just being more specific about what the green claim is so a consumer is more able to make a decision as to whether they really care about that or not or it can affect their purchasing decision um, and at the same time i think also making sure that uh, you're seeing more and more efforts being made so that if a claim is being made, that there is actually proof behind that claim so that a consumer can go and research uh, the manufacturer's website, for example, and find proof that indeed their product does what they say it does. You know, I think and then the, the other thing, too, uh, uh, Joe and, and, uh, and Cliff, is that certainly there is the government intervention side of it, which has really ramped up over the last few years as well. You know, one of the things that I found, uh, I guess, troubling in, in the report 
was in the report there was a, a study citing this is from 2004 on environmental on environmental awareness in the U.S. that 80 percent of the population is heavily influenced by incorrect or outdated environmental myths. And when a consumer walks into the store, in any store, big box, little box, they see a green label on there, they don't know the difference between one label and another. They see something on there, and even even if the uh, manufacturer committed that that worst sin, worst sin of, of uh, worshiping a false label or you know creating their own uh, you know certification process. You know I, I think it's you know I think it's troubling. I, I, one of the things that you did is you put out this term clutter, and I think it's really an excellent it's really an excellent term. And, and I think what happens is it's almost like our lawn. You know we have this lawn, and we really desire to have nice grass and you have certain weeds or certain undesirable things that are in there and I think what we need is you know we have this green grass and and they're all on the same page then you have a couple of weeds that are in there and I think that's really what needs to be cleaned up um, I'm not sure exactly how to do it but um, you know the public um, they're just misinformed and I'm really not sure that they're really that concerned about it I think when given the choice of buying something green or not, I think everyone would rather have something that's green, providing it really is. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I think in that same, uh, in, I think it was the same source in the paper, uh, also talked about uh, something that was pretty uh, concerning to me, certainly, was that 10% of people, uh, of all people, blindly will believe any green claim that they hear or see. Uh, and, and that's uh, quite remarkable. The other thing that's also interesting is that I think it's incumbent upon us uh, the, as being consumers and buyers just to become more knowledgeable about it as well because the overwhelming majority of the information that people get on green, uh, that adults get on green, comes from uh, media outlets. Uh, and, and even th- going down to uh, children, I think it's something in excess of 70% of the information that they get on environmental issues or green issues come strictly from media as well. And typically in the media, it's a very superficial uh, band of information that is being presented. Uh, but when that's your, your primary source of information that you're receiving on these issues, uh, it le- leaves something to be desired. So I think it is incumbent upon us also to get out there to learn more and to become more knowledgeable ourselves because I think that in turn will help clear some of that clutter in the marketplace. The more uh, knowledgeable buyers we are, uh, purchasers or specifiers or consumers, uh, I think ultimately that can help drive and change the market. You know, I can see another place where I hope, I don't know, but I hope there's going to be some assistance with uh, helping the public understand these issues and giving them good choices. And I'm wondering if you can comment on how well the big box stores are doing. I mean, obviously there's pros and cons to the big box concept, but I'm wondering how well they are doing with respect to making sure the products they buy, because they have significant influence over our purchasing, how are they doing with respect to making sure these products are not, you know, part of the seven sins problem? Yeah, I think that they're playing, a, uh, in general, they're playing a positive role because, uh, as you said, they the, the big box stores essentially have the initial buying power uh, from the manufacturers. And I think what it is is just uh, increasing the knowledge and sophistication of everybody, including the big box retailers, uh, related to these green issues, understanding that, uh, that green is a very vague word, understanding more about the, the products that they're putting on their shelves, being able to see the claims themselves, and being more knowledgeable that, uh, as to whether that is actually uh, an, an appropriate claim or not. Uh, one of the, the recent, I believe it was one of the, the, the most recent publication from, uh, from Territories on the sins of greenwashing, I think it even mentioned that, that, that the big box retailers play, are playing a more and more significant role in trying to manage uh, and trying to remove some of that clutter that exists in the marketplace. And those big stores are doing a much better job than the smaller stores or the boutique stores, uh, which you would expect. So I think they can play a pivotal role. I think they understand that. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think we're seeing some relatively positive impacts as a result of them becoming more knowledgeable and using their own buying power to, to, help, uh, to help clean some of this up as it relates to green marketing claims in the market. 
Before we move on, I just want to make sure that listeners know that Terra Choices, T-E-R-R-A, and then the second word is choice. So if you want to Google that and get some more information on the reports they've put together, I think it's a, a great resource. But uh, let's let's move on to the next segment within the, within the uh, paper we're talking about here, and that's the, the green chemistry uh, section. I find that very interesting, and I'm sure Cliff did as well as a as a manufacturer. Do you have, you want to take well, the no, lead on? Yeah, I do. I have a couple. Well, first of all, I have a comment, and I think the comment is about ten years ago. I was in Europe, and I, I saw I was actually exhibiting a trade show over there, and they had a product that that won this award for being, uh, you know, environmentally conscious, for working well, and and so on and so forth. And I talked to the manufacturer, and here it was a phosphate based cleaning product and you know in the United States we don't use many phosphates anymore and the big concern is that they get into the water system and they act as a fertilizer in water and it causes algae and plants to do well and you know fish to suffer because the plants are doing well and they kind of use up the oxygen that's in the water and in the United States phosphates are frowned upon and you know we take we need phosphates we actually take them uh, as mineral supplements and there are a lot of uses for phosphates indoors for instance if you're cleaning you know, if you put it into a hard surface cleaner and you're spraying it onto a surface, it's not going into the water system. It stays on the desk. It stays on the countertop. It stays on the windows. And yet, oftentimes, a product cannot achieve an environmental certification because it contains a phosphate when, in reality, I think sometimes the certification organizations just don't understand that there's a difference between uh, the the certain particular chemical and how it's applied and how it's used and uh, you know whether or not it does or doesn't get into the water supply. Well, yeah, and you know the uh, the concept of of green chemistry. I'm not. In, I have to admit, I'm not a a deep uh, subject matter expert on green chemistry. But the you know the concept behind the green chemistry movement is that when you're when you're creating a product, it's to manage the impacts of that product and the chemistry that's used in that product at the design phase, uh, as opposed to trying to develop mechanisms on the disposal side uh, that will result in uh, potentially costly cleanups and, and so forth. They call it benign. You've heard this term. I think it's in the paper as well called benign by design. I think that was uh, coined by the state of California. But the concept is really turning around the product development process in general and considering the impacts of uh, the chemicals that are used in those products at the front end as opposed to having to manage them at the back end uh, disposal stage. So that's, in general, the concept of green chemistry. The, the thing that's really important, though, that we ought to keep in mind, and, and that we haven't talked about it a lot, but I think it is important for people to realize that, in general, whether it's a uh, uh, various green initiatives that are taken by corporate America or green chemistry initiatives that are being taken on by corporate America, it, it is this concept of doing what seems to be certainly the right thing to do. The, it feels good to be able to do it, that again, you're, you're leaving this place a better, a better one than we found it. But I think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that through these processes, there are also significant economic benefits as well. And I believe that it is the understanding of these long-term economic benefits that have occurred over the last 10 or 15 years that have really driven a lot of the innovation that you're seeing today in, in green societies, or I'm, I'm sorry, in the green marketplace. Uh, you, you t I saw a great presentation by one of the mega uh, box retailers, and this just gives you a good example of the thinking behind this, where it's a combination of doing something that seems to be right because it's efficient and it has a less impact on on the environment and the planet, but at the same time, it does something that just is uh, economically uh, powerful to that organization. And it was a big box retailer that talked about the concept that they uh, they they make sure that they have all of their employees involved in being able to provide ideas and concepts behind uh, helping them be a greener organization. And they had one particular store manager, uh, I believe it was in uh, Texas that had this concept that, that said, we, well, in our break rooms, we have these soda machines. 
And uh, these soda machines have lights uh, in the front that, of course, illuminate. And this is behind the walls. It's not out in the store itself, but it's in the break room. And he had this concept of saying, is there a way that we could actually unplug the lights in these soda machines from an energy efficiency standpoint? And they thought that was a great idea. So they, uh, they called the manufacturer of the machines and understood how to be able to do that. And they implemented that nationwide, North America, uh, and, and turned off all the lights within those, uh, those soda machines. And what they found is that as a result of that one small task, which was generated by an employee, they saved $1.4 million a year in annual energy costs. So I think as we kind of end the interview, I do want people to keep in mind that it's not just necessarily the warm, fuzzy aspect of being green as being the right thing to do. But in many, many cases, everything that we do, whether it's green chemistry or other initiatives, energy conservation, water conservation, can have a tremendous impact on uh, the bottom line and, and ultimately on, on the business world as well. If given a choice, and I think sometimes consumers have a choice, it's either people first or it's environment first. It's one or the other. I don't think that you can have both. And I think in certain situations, you know, there have been some, you know, from the chemical side, there have been certain solvents that were banned, and they were banned because of, you know, they were chlorofluorocarbons, and, uh, you know, it goes back to ozone, it goes back to smog. And oftentimes the replacement product that is available is much more hazardous to the worker than the product that was banned. And I think sometimes we put the environment first when we really should be putting people first. And, you know, once we put people first, put environment second. And I think that, you know, it might just make a little bit more sense in terms of, you know, grasping our arms around this, rather saying that it was green environmentally or green uh, for the indoor environment, green for the exterior, ex you know, outdoor environment, green as far as people are concerned. You know, maybe the certifications uh, would better serve the public if they were organized like that. You know, it's really interesting because if you were to take a look at a lot of the surveys that have been done, and there's quite a few that have been done, uh, especially by McGraw-Hill uh, over the last several years related to uh, surveying the market and asking the question, what are the primary drivers behind why you are deciding, deciding to build a green building, whether that be educational, commercial, uh, or even a green home? And I think at first blush, a lot of people would think that, that the primary driver uh, is energy efficiency because there's a significant tangible cost benefit. But interestingly enough, to your point, um, what ranks one or two, and in many cases ranks as the primary driver, is the, the health and wellness of the people in that building, whether that be uh, in a healthcare facility, the patients and the staff, or whether that's a commercial building, it's the employees, or whether it's our home, it's our families. But when you think about the concept of green, and many people do associate that first and foremost with, uh, with environment, outdoor environment, but in reality, when people are making those conscious decisions about building green, that the primary, and it's not primary, it's the, it's the second leading reason why they build green, uh, is exactly what you said, it's the protection of the people in that building, and that's why there is such a close association between everything that you see in the marketplace today related to, to, to the green movement, whether that's green building or green products, and its association with indoor environmental quality and ultimately the, the, health, of, the health of the people that inhabit these buildings. Tony, I want to get your uh, opinion on the future of green in a moment here, but we're going to go to our roundup, bring in Dr. Wild for a quick comment or two, and then we'll have our final questions. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw hide. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Okay, let's get uh, Dr. Dietrich Wow on the line. Hello, Dieter. Any questions yeah, or comments? Joe, I tell you one thing right off the bat. I think we got to get Tony back in again. I think uh, uh, I have about an hour of comments. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, do you think we can do that? Um, 
I really think that this is an incredibly important and even interesting topic that we talked about. But first of all, I have to congratulate Andy again. Andy is a dear friend of mine. He knows the answers. I don't give him the answers. I don't. I know, know you don't. No, you don't. No one knows it except me and Joe. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, I wrote down here the percent recyclable, and I bet you that ninety percent of the people who answer that question underestimate it, and I have good reason for that. I was in the 1980s at the time the Soviet Union. Many people called it uh, uh, Russia at the time. There is no garbage in the Soviet Union. <laughs> they recycle everything. Or in Egypt, huh? <laughs> uh, or in Egypt. Uh, uh, I saw people made wire uh, twists out of aluminum cans, like Coca-Cola. Or, in fact, in the Soviet Union at the time, it was Pepsi-Cola. But uh, I, I'm a little bit... Uh, uh, and, and, and Tony touched on that. We, we, we are talking about something like 11,000 products which are good, bad, or indifferent. I don't really care. The number 11,000 bothers me. And um, you know, there isn't a toxicologist in the world who will not agree with me that if you get in, insulted and <laughs> assaulted by 20 chemicals, that is worse than only one chemical. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands around. And I am the first one to admit there are a lot of benefits from it. But I think we got to watch out uh, uh, um, about that. Tony also mentioned, and I teach that in my classes, uh, that I use the exposure limits, uh, particularly from the threshold limit values, the TLVs from the ACGIH, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists. Why do I use it? Because I have the documentation. I don't get a naked number. They tell me how the learned people came up with a number. And of course, I know that these threshold limit values, the TLVs, are made for the American worker. And we don't have old people in the workforce anymore, except me, and certainly not any young ones anymore. So... Uh, yeah, you have to divide by 10, by 50, or by 100. That is all right. I think Joe also touched on something. Uh, it's it's the, the, the education. I uh, uh, In fact, Tony mentioned that, too. Yeah, people go in there and say, oh, it's green, I buy it. Uh, why? Nobody knows why. Nobody knows that. Um, maybe we should. I don't know how to do that in a nice way. Maybe we should do that in, 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 in grade school or something like this. And the other thing, and I like that what Cliff said, is absolutely incredible, and I'm 100% in agreement with him. We are banning something. We are substituting something else. We banned lead. You know how many rings and rings and rings of um, uh, information is available on lead. I mean, uh, you need you need a truck. I mean, uh, uh, an 18-wheeler to haul that stuff away. How much do we know about the substitutes? We don't know anything about it. Well, so, yeah. I think just saying, "Hey, this one is bad, and here is a new one." About well, I know they are tested and all of that. And here is another thing. Um, I, in my backyard, I, uh, I don't, I, last year and the year before, it had something to do with laziness. I didn't fertilize my lawn. I, psychologically and philosophically, <laughs> I thought, you know, why put something on there that I have to cut it more often? <laughs> uh, interestingly, uh, my backyard, uh, I don't know what these birds are. These are black birds about the size of a robin. And I have pictures of that. They were sitting in my lawn and along the property line from my neighbor who has somebody who sprays some good stuff on there to make it look greener or whatever you. said, these dumb birds knew exactly what was fertilized, where they were chemicals, uh, and they were sitting on my yard, which is fine with me. Well. Anyway, um, there are many more... Uh, 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 many more um, uh, comments that I have, but I shut up right now. 
Thank you, Dieter. We always appreciate your input. Tony, I, I don't know how tight you are on time. Do you have a couple more minutes, or do you have to run? I sure do. Great. No, I have a couple more minutes, no problem. Because we, um, we, we, we have all the time in the world here. We don't have any rules. So <laughs> I'm curious, <laughs> if you could, could you give us a little bit of your, your sense of, of what the future of green products look like? Yeah, well, I think, you know, talk about them on a couple of levels. I think you will see uh, the market continue to mature. I think you'll find that manufacturers are going to find that uh, uh, they're going to be under more pressure to uh, present the green attributes of their product very clearly uh, and, and more precisely as well. And I think that will come from some government influence. But I think as well it's just going to be uh, the increased knowledge in the marketplace from the retailers who are carrying those products and I think from the, the general public itself. Uh, so I think that we'll see that. I think that the market will get better. I think that the clutter will be removed over time, but I think we're going to have to be have to be vigilant on that front. Uh, you know, my my area of expertise is in the realm of, of product emissions testing and and understanding the impact of uh, low level chemical exposures on people over their lifetime. And I, what we need to see is we need to be able to close that gap between the chemicals that we have knowledge of today, which is really uh, from a relative sense, just a handful compared to those chemicals that exist uh, in the marketplace. Well, today, there's, I think, 80,000 chemicals that are used in commerce uh, in North America today. And like I said, we know so little about uh, about most of those chemicals. So we need to be able to to uh, to close that gap, to understand more, and then ultimately to understand what type of impact that may have on people long term. You know, one of the the most interesting statistics that I can provide uh, comes directly from our laboratories here. And we have been doing product emissions testing for the last uh, 22 years now and uh, have identified all of these different chemicals. And, and what you'll find interesting is that in the last 12 months alone, we have identified uh, 700 new chemicals emitting from products that we had never identified in our prior 21 years. Wow. So that shows how difficult that task is because not only are you trying to make up that gap between chemicals that exist in the marketplace today, existing chemicals, and our knowledge about those, but it seems that new chemical creation and introduction is outpacing uh, our ability to be able to keep up with the marketplace. So I think there's some significant needs that we need along that front and, and certainly hope that our public health professionals, both in the private world and the government sector, can really help us narrow that down or in the absence of having that information in the short term, help us devise ways to be able to make sure that, that we reach our ultimate goal, which is protecting public health. Cliff? Yeah, I think, you know, going back to the chemistry, I guess my final comment, and, you know, this is something that I know Dieter preaches, and, you know, really the dose is the poison. And oftentimes these green certification organizations say you can't use this, you can't use that. When in reality, I think everyone understands that too much of anything uh, is is hazardous. And, you know, it just doesn't really make sense to me to just say that you shouldn't use this ingredient or you shouldn't use that ingredient when perhaps a small amount of that ingredient may be better, uh, even for the environment, may be better than the worker than, uh, you know, than not using it. So, um, Tony, any, any comment on that? No, I think it. I think it is important. You know, from the old the, the toxicologist world and the public health world, uh, you couldn't have said it better. It is. It is the dose because it, when you think about things just being toxic, well, virtually everything's toxic. Uh, oxygen at too high a level is toxic. Uh, water, uh, uh, as as uh, we all know. So that's I think one of those myths that are out there. And I think that when you're making decisions based upon uh, whether a product should be used or not, I think understanding the concept of dose is important because I think you also have to understand the potential benefits of the product or service, uh, and you also have to understand the impacts. If, if you're looking for alternative strategies, what are those impacts, and are those impacts greater than the original uh, product or, or product ingredients that, uh, that you were faced with? Is there anything we, we let, I know we, we've got to get you back to talk a little more on this subject. I know we missed a lot of things, but anything in particular that, that really stands out that we missed that you'd like to add? I don't think so. I think we covered a lot of it there. You know, the, the thing that's important is that there's so much good information that's entering the marketplace now that people can uh, better arm themselves with knowledge. We talked about the, the, the sins of greenwashing uh, articles that are out there, uh, certainly. 
the paper that uh, we've written. There's a series of papers that we've written. This is just the latest uh, one of those that people have uh, free access to. Uh, I think that's the key is that you're going to see more and more of this information coming out. I think people that are in the building world, the contractor world, the developer world, uh, all the way to the consumers that are buying products for their homes have much more information available that's good and helpful for them in making uh, buying decisions. But uh, I've had a great time today uh, and uh, look forward to hopefully being able to to join your show sometime in the future. Thanks. We appreciate having you. Before you go, can you tell listeners where they can get a copy of the paper and, and maybe how they can contact you or your company? Yeah, uh, you can uh, get a copy of the paper uh, one of two ways. You can go to our uh, website uh, and find it there. That's www.aqs.org. It will be uh, in our uh, Arius IAQ Resource Center. The other thing you can do is you can send us an email to info at aqs.org and put in the subject line free paper, and we'd be happy to attach it and send it back to you via email as well. Thank you. We appreciate that, and uh, hopefully a lot of listeners will take advantage of that. I know I've got a copy, and that Aries is, uh, what is that, A-E-R-I-A-S, Arius.org? That's correct. That's correct, Arius.org. You can get it there directly, uh, or you can go to the Arius IQ Resource Center, which is on the AQS website as well. So there's different ways to get it. Uh, and then uh, ultimately, you know, the easiest thing uh, may be just to shoot us a quick email, say free paper, and we'll be happy to attach it and send it back for you. And that's info at AQS.com. Yeah, Joe, I think, I think before we get off, I think Guest 12 made a fair comment that it really isn't the dose, it's the exposure. And I think that's... Uh, fair comment that we want to include all right well thank you and i want to make sure that we thank this week's guest mr tony worthen from uh, air quality sciences for joining us in a very interesting discussion of green products today uh, i want to let our listeners know next week we're going to have dr mark mandel from the lawrence berkeley national laboratories and the california department of health but before we go i want to thank the Z-Man, Cliff, for that was good, I great week. Uh, of course, Austin Novak at the controls, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and uh, most importantly, you are a growing group of loyal listeners. Thanks again, and I agree, uh, excellent guest, Guest 12. Uh, thanks for joining us this week. Come back next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed.